Welcome back to Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. We're very glad that you continue to support this podcast. You can get the information on any platform uh, where podcasts are played, as well as getting the video content on YouTube. But if you want to just get one place to find all the content, go to my website at drgarrickthesportsdoctor.com and you will find everything on that website. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, so welcome to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, and we have another very interesting guest for you today. Uh, we have Dr. Christy Tuff DeSapri, who is a bone specialist in short, but she is a, another physician, a fellow physician who specializes in bone health, specifically women's bone health. And this is a very specialized subject that she deals with, a very specialized practice that she has. And we're going to talk about today how she chose to get into this practice, as well as I'm very excited to have another bone specialist on the show. So we'll jump into some bone health topics as well. So welgome to the show, Dr. Christy. Thank you, Dr. Burgess. I'm so happy to be here. And again, see the theme, uh, you know, think about bones. Maybe you think about fractures. I think about preventing fractures. So Sure, uh, sure. You are truly the doctor that needs to be on every orthopedic surgeon's speed dial because we are the gatekeepers for the bone, so to speak. However, many times in a, a busy surgical practice, we don't have the time to go into the detail that you do in your practice. So it's great to, you know, that you have this practice and I'm sure that there's more work than can be done for you with what you have going on once people learn about your practice. I mean, yes, where to start? We always have more work to do in medicine, right? This is why the yeah. fields are always evolving. We always ask the hard questions and, you know, want to help our patients in the best way we can. And you're absolutely right. I, um, just like yourself, you know, have a sort of a multidisciplinary background and focused. I'm actually a board certified internist and I practiced in gynecology for many years. I did a fellowship training in women's health at the Cleveland clinic is where I really like understood more about osteoporosis. And I saw that no one was really taking care of women, you know, in fractures or that care was honestly very fractured and fragmented itself from what you said, you know, when patients have a fracture that gets treated, where do people go after that? How do we equate that? And how does that fit into, you know, midlife women's health, where we know that a lot of women are suffering these fractures or, or being diagnosed with osteoporosis and, and what do we do? So absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, orthopedic surgeons, I, you know, spend a lot of time in the academic world and, you know, again, my hobby is sort of osteoporosis and menopause. And so a lot of the, I have a lot of respect for a lot of orthopedic surgeons who really, again, help patients in the front line and really are trying a lot of these big institutions and even smaller practices is trying to, you know, coordinate care for patients, post-fracture care, secondary uh, prevention, meaning preventing the second fracture because the statistics for osteoporosis related fractures, you know, in this country and even worldwide are staggering, right? One fracture occurs every three seconds worldwide, one fracture every 15 seconds here in the United States. And, and once women and men have sustained a fracture, you know, 20% go on to have another one within one to five years. And that's, we're probably keeping the orthopedic surgeons in, in business, but we want to prevent these fractures, particularly hip fractures, which are really, you know, have a downward spiral, both in, you know, quality of life and quantity of life for patients. Yeah. But, and that's one of the things that I think people don't really grasp the concept that after you had a fracture, especially for some elderly, you might never gain independence or, you know, there's a correlation between that fracture and even death. 
or that fracture and loss of independence, that fracture and other comorbidities coming along. So as many as we can prevent, there's plenty of fractures still for the orthopedic surgeons to do, but we would definitely want to aim to prevent as many fractures as possible. And we'll dive a little deeper into how we can prevent that, not only for women, but also for men. But let's talk about, well, before we get too deep into the bone, let's talk about your course of how you decided to you know, do a fellowship in women's health and do a fellowship about bones and bone health. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I've taken like, you know, always like the path less traveled, right. A little bit is, is always, you know, more interesting. And really, I think again, gives me a better perspective, you know, to see patients. So, you know, my, my practice, again, I started in internal medicine, actually I started in gynecology, uh, delivering babies and um, at a big New York hospital. And I, you know, I liked women's care. And I always thought that I, I always knew I wanted to go into medicine. I do not come from a family of doctors, actually more, you know, business and teachers. This was really a strong passion of mine right from childhood. Um, and then when you, I got to OBGYN, I thought, oh, this actually wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it was sort of a more of a snapshot in time. And I'll, I love the excitement of obstetrics, but I also miss the like ongoing care that, um, you know, I, I like to give women and see them through different stages, reproductive history, postpartum, and then, and then beyond. And so I actually switched and did a full internal medicine residency, staying, you know, within my uh, OBGYN sort of um, purview. I like taught all the residents how to do pap smears. They loved me um, and, and, and did some research in breast cancer and then um, sought out a, you know, the Cleveland Clinic that has a uh, very specialized, you know, women's health fellowship where essentially uh, you learn and, and are apprenticed with pretty much every guy, every midlife women's health, you know, issue and practice. So from breast health to gynecology, urogynecology, bone, menopause, treatment, management, hormone therapy discussion, and then also as a staff as internal medicine. And really there, um, I just really found uh, my people. I still have a lot of those colleagues I speak to on a daily basis, and I still do a lot of um, writing, academic writing, speaking, lecturing, or just, you know, lifelong friends. And really then like grew my interest in, and really felt like, again, menopause, medicine, such an exciting time, so many new developments, you know, offering uh, for women discussing the risk benefit of hormone therapy. And then again, and bone health was kind of like tucked always like a oh yeah and we should think about your dexa right. skin and, and we should like think about mm -hmm. preventing osteoporosis and talk to you about calcium and vitamin d and i really think this field again with you know with pharmaceuticals as well as with interest media attention has really evolved more into like understanding that, you know, osteoporosis and osteopenia are not inevitable. Fractures are not inevitable. I'm actually giving a lecture on Wednesday uh, to a virtual summit on fall prevention. And, and really, again, you know, a lot of these things are all connected. Falls and fractures we know are connected. You know, 95% of hip fractures occur from a fall. So we need to think about these things holistically. And I really, again, think that when we think about midlife women's health post-reproductive years, that's really I was really like, this is the area for me. This is where the women I want to treat. This is the population I want to take care of. Um, you know, I always think I have such high esteem for the women in my community and my family and, and colleagues that, you know, are, are in the post, you know, perimenopause, postmenopause years. And so really always feel like I, whatever I can do to help them live optimally is, uh, that's my dream. Yeah. Now that's great that you chase your dream because literally you, you breeze past the fact that you are OBGYN, which is one specialty. And then you said, hey, there's more to what I want to do. And you went back and sought out more training. And many people, because we have to choose our paths so early, we choose our paths usually second, third year med school, when we have little exposure to that medical topic or to that medical specialty. 
And many people just have to stick it out because you say, look, I've invested all this time. There's no way I'm turning back. I have all these loans. You know, I've started this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. How can I go back to being a student again, really? And, you know, so you went through all that. Tell us about some of the emotions maybe around that decision. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, we exactly like it. it sometimes it's so hard when we go through, we have a, an idea in our mind that we're sort of fixated on that idea. And then the reality is probably a little bit different, or maybe our personality um, is, you know, is better suited for something else. So, you know, I am a person um, probably similar to yourself and other people listening, right? You're like, I, I like to do multitask. I feel like I love connecting. I love, you know, making, you know, people's health and making people feel better and their health a priority. So, you know, and I thought that that was what I was going to be doing with obstetrics and that changed. So, you know, again, and then internal medicine, again, also had is a very huge topic of, you know, I right. did a lot of hospital medicine, a lot of taking uh, care of, you know, certain conditions, I didn't think I was going to be, you know, treating, you know, hospital acquired pneumonia and, and doing all of that all over again. But again, I think, you know, with the goal, I really always feel like if you have a strong mission and a strong goal, you know, then you can keep that. And I knew I always wanted to, you know, treat midlife women's health and get into that field somehow. And I think it's probably very similar in you know, the orthopedic world, right? Some people might want, want to be a surgeon, but they might find things like family practice and then sports medicine or physical medicine and rehab. And there's a lot of ways, you know, to get to your goal. So I think that is one thing, right? As a 20 year old, I did not know, but uh, right. now as a 40 year old, I, I absolutely know. And I, I am not board certified in OBGYN. I'm actually just board certified in internal medicine, but I did a fellowship. And then I teach and train so many more OBGYNs, internal medicine physicians, because again, this is where, you know, the intersection of, you know, our training in this, particularly in the United States, you know, we have such specific focuses in our training. And then when we actually get out into the real practice world, we realize, you know, OBGYNs and just delivering babies and reproductive and surgery, although those things are huge and vast within their own sphere, a lot of women are going to come to you with urge incontinence and with menopausal symptoms and vice versa, internal medicine, right? We can't just learn how to treat hypertension and diabetes when the 50 year old woman is going to say, I, I have vasomotor symptoms, you know, and most women just go to their internist and you're going to say, oh, I didn't get training on that. Well, the patient's not going to like that, right? And, and you don't mm -hmm. like saying that. Yeah. So again, I think roundabout way to answer your question, I think, you know, a lot of uncertainty, you know, in, in the younger years, but I think it's really important to, again, have a goal in mind, stick with that goal, see the end vision, remind yourself with quotes, inspiration, whatever you have right. to do. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about bone health, uh, because many times, as you said, it's always pushed on the back burner is, oh yeah, you need to get a DEXA scan or make sure you're taking vitamins, make sure you're taking vitamin D, but people don't really get the education around why it is so important to take care of your bones. But let's talk to about just bone health in general and why it, how it affects your overall health and well-being. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we talk about bone health too late and right. And that's like the sort of the public service announcement of many, you know, conditions, right? We need to work on more prevention than we do treatment. And, and particularly for, you know, again, women in the menopause transition, which is the time around menopause, perimenopause, and the early postmenopausal years, for many of those women, they need to be thinking about, a, you know, looking at their, their bone health and where it is now after their reproductive years, after their peak bone mass years, because we really build our peak bone mass or so our 20s or 30s. You see this, you know, with kids, right? They break a bone, they heal in six weeks. 
guess what? You're not going to do the same when you're, you know, in your thirties and forties, things are going to take longer because the bone remodeling process, the bone modeling process, we're laying down new bone changes, right? It slows down. We have more bone loss than we have bone formed. And primarily that's really important in women because we have estrogen and estradiol is exquisitely sensitive to the bone and other tissues as well, like the vagina, the vulva, other areas. And so when we think about menopause, that's a, a snapshot in time where we know that bone loss is going to occur for you know 99.9% of women. We know women with family history of osteoporosis, lower body mass, women who you know are smokers, women who've had a, conditions like whether that be medical conditions, medicine, surgical conditions, anything that affects peak bone mass or accelerates bone loss, they're going to start menopause at a lower bone mass. I usually use the analogy of bone bank with my patients really. And so at menopause, when we lose estrogen, everyone's going to lose bone mass. And some women, that's going to be dramatic. Some women, they're going to have started with, you know, lower bone mass, and then they're going to see a dramatic shift. And what does that mean? You know, that means that they're at higher risk for injuries. Fractures is primarily one of them. And, and this is why we call osteoporosis a silent condition, because many women don't know they have osteoporosis until they break a fracture. And you know, you're in orthopedic surgery, you know, the most common fracture of women in their 50s is a fall on an outstretched arm, which is a radial right. head or radius wrist fracture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times those are just treated and then patients, women go along their way. We know though from long-term studies that, you know, 25% of women with a, a radius fracture or a wrist fracture will have some sort of either, you know, difficulty in the, in the next, you know, 10 years, whether that's, they can't fully rotate the wrist, whether they have chronic pain, whether they have just, they have to, you know, there's a little tweak, they have to alter their activities. So these are just not no big deal fractures, but often they're treated that way. And they really are a herald sign for fractures. And for, again, a call out that we need a bone health evaluation. And that can be many things that can be a fracture risk assessment, which is a online tool that patients and doctors can do themselves that tells us what's your what we think your fracture risk could be looking at your clinical data, like your birth, your data, you know, you look your age and your weight or your family history, other clinical variables like your, if there's secondary osteoporosis, if you're a smoker, alcohol, um, mobility, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, all these conditions. And then the second way that we can find about osteoporosis, which is really should be, which is the gold standard and really should be more widely available to women in menopause and midlife is a DEXA scan, which is a dual energy x-ray absorbiometry. It's a low radiation, one one hundredth of an x-ray in terms of radiation scan that we scan the spine, both hips, sometimes the forearm to evaluate the bone density. And now we can also evaluate bone strength with some other technologies. You know, I recently, you know, I'm the proud owner of a, uh, a DEXA scan. I cannot say this is an inexpensive purchase, but is it very useful, you know, useful and worthwhile service in my opinion, because again, I can interpret the scans, know how to do the scans, give patients the valuable information that they need, even if it's, you know, normal or osteopenia or low bone mass, that still is number one, one, it either makes patients day in my day, or it gives us something to discuss. Why is your bone mass normal? Why is your bone mass low? We need to look forward to the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, women are living into their eighties now healthy and well, and how can we think put fracture risk with all the other things we're talking about at menopause, like breast cancer risk, like cardiovascular risk like, you know, moving your body, like nutrition, getting enough sleep, all these things, right? So it's not just one, you know, thing that we focus on, but we put this into the broader perspective. Yeah. So uh, you covered a lot there, but I want to just so people don't miss those fine points. So peak bone mass 
late 20s, what about 28 to 32, somewhere in that range, correct? Correct, exactly. So the decisions we're making early in life get your bone stores as high as they possibly can. And from there, you're losing bone at a certain rate. As you mentioned right. before, menopause, after menopause, after you start to lose some of those normal hormones, the rate of bone loss increases where the rate of bone growth decreases. So it's a balance that you're playing between building bone and losing bone, which eventually right. leads to that osteoporosis. And then for the DEXA scan, for people that are interested in how do I get this DEXA scan, what age recommendation is it for DEXA scan as well as just for a normal person versus someone who might have a family history? Yeah. So an excellent summary. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, I In terms of the DEXA scan, again, this varies based on, you know, our, the, these medical societies, sometimes we can't decide. I mean, you right. know, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> what's going on with us. So these the silly guidelines, but generally most of the guidelines recommend, you know, women who are 65, absolutely that everyone needs a DEXA scan. We're still not doing a great job on that based on Medicare data, but absolutely age 65 for men, that's age 70, 70 to 75, but most of the guidelines say 70. For women who are postmenopausal, and remember, menopause can be, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, the neat menopause at 51 and a half, which is the average age of menopause. We know we have a wide range. So some women go into menopause at 40, they could have surgical menopause, they can have chemically induced menopause from chemotherapy, radiation, other medications. They can have premature ovarian insufficiency where menopause occurs before age 40 early menopause. So those women who have undergone those conditions, early menopause or premature menopause or surgically induced menopause at an early age, earlier than 45, absolutely need a screening bone mineral density evaluation. Because again, they've, they've achieved their peak bonus and they're starting that bone descent earlier. And we need to figure out yeah. where they are because maybe we need to intervene or we need to intervene for the future. In terms of other women between, again, the postmenopausal years, generally 50 to 65, you know, this, there's, if you have risk factors for bone loss, the list of risk factors is like, you know, what doctors love, like two, you know, a big table with lots of lists. But <laughs> if, we can if we can make it simpler, it's, you know, again, if there's, you know, early menopause, family history of osteoporosis, family history of fractures, particularly like a paternal or maternal history of a hip fracture in, the, in your 70s, because again, bone mass can be inherited. This is genetically uh, related. We have the genetics are very strong here. Again, medical conditions, specifically the highlights would be things like rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, things like uh, lupus, um, autoimmune conditions. Also, surgical conditions, particularly things like uh, bariatric surgery, malabsorption surgeries, those are going to, again, impact your calcium and vitamin D metabolism. Things like medicines, things like steroids, chronic steroid use, but that can be oral steroids, you know, inhaled steroids and nasal steroids. The, the evidence is sort of mixed on that. Aromatase inhibitors, a huge class of medicines used for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer patients. I see many of those women that have lots of detailed counseling because they have you know, estrogen deficiencies generally from an early age. And we can, there are, but doesn't mean that there's nothing to be done for them, for their bones or for their vasomotor symptoms and, and other parts of, for their quality and quantity of life. And so, and even medicines like proton pump inhibitors, SSRI, some of these long-term can affect again, bone loss. So any of those stronger risk factors, if you've had a fracture, absolutely. That's like, you know, 
do not pass go. Just go right. You, you absolutely need a DEXA because we need to evaluate why you've had a fracture. Vitamin D deficiency and calcium deficiency. You know, we can't really measure calcium well. The calcium that we see on our blood tests, this is one of the most common questions I get, is what our kidneys are filtering and what our kidneys are processing based on, you know, our balance between what's in our bones, what's in our blood, what the parathyroid hormone is also secreting. That is not telling us that you have adequate calcium nutritionally or in supplements. Many women have low calcium. The way we check for that is actually a 24-hour urine uh, test. Vitamin D deficiency, very common in different areas of the country, darker skin, you know, patients who are in, in nursing homes or in facilities, you know, things like this. So vitamin D deficiency is just rampant. So all of those are like little risk factors. So you can kind of think about it. If you have at least one to two risk factors, many women do, you know, if you're Caucasian and low body mass, that already, you should already have a DEXA. So, I mean, and if you, you know, have ever been a smoker, or any alcohol use, family history, then you should also have a DEXA. So there's many reasons to have a screening DEXA. Again, this is a screening test, just like our pap smears and other, this is a low cost, low radiation, high, safe and effective, you know, test to evaluate, you know, bone density and bone strength. The hardest part is you need an order for that. Maybe that will change in the future, but you need an order from your, you know, generally primary care, sometimes specialty care, like endocrinologist, if you already have bone loss, is ordering that. A gynecologist, you know, again, allied health professionals can all order these tests. And oftentimes I have women come to me saying, you know, ex, you know, my general doctor didn't think I needed one. I got one done and boom, I have osteoporosis, you know, and yeah. so and we don't, we need to change that paradigm, right? That's why I'm, I'm happy that, happy to have, uh, find you and, and, and let us talk about this important topic. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see just by all the factors how individualized your care needs to be. So you need to have a primary care physician. And that's why even if you're healthy, why you really need to be tuned in or really be, need to be in connection with a primary care doctor. So they will know your risk factors and know your family history. Because if you ask someone at urgent care, hey, you're going to get a, a very vanilla answer, age 65, age 70, even though it might be different for you. And as you were going through all these factors, I thought about one of the meds that we definitely overuse in the States is steroids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you go to, you have an upper respiratory that. infection or you have anything, you go and you get antibiotics, steroids, and some pain medication. Mm -hmm. But talk about how even a short dose of steroids, how it can affect the bones and how, yeah. it can, you know, for a long term. Yeah. So, you know, this is like, you know, we think about, and when I see my patients, this is what I talk about, sort of the cumulative use of steroids. And, you know, and this isn't really an, actually an area that's evolving in the bone health field because we do have, you know, a lot of rheumatologists uh, in this field, endocrinologists, we're giving steroids. We know that steroids are now given, you know, in spine clinics, they're given in pain clinics, you know, in, with chemotherapy, steroids are given. So I kind of take a patient, I ask them, you know, what steroid exposure do you think you've had? Like asthma, inhaled steroids, nasal steroids oral steroids for things like exactly like you said, a bronchitis, you know, a dermatologic infection, you know, I pay patients that, you know, have, you know, they get poison ivy, they get put on steroids, you know, I try and take as much of a good steroid history as we can, because we do know that particularly when we think about IV steroids, epidural steroids, things like that, these are all, you know, particularly for patients, many times who already have low bone density in their spine or getting these because they're having spinal stenosis, or they're having vertebral fractures themselves or compression fractures, we're putting steroids into a weak area. And we know that steroids, particularly what they do for bone is they actually 
accelerate bone loss by ramping up the osteoclast. They block the bone forming or osteoblasts, and they also decrease intestinal calcium absorption. So they make you not absorb the calcium as well, too. So it's like a triple threat. Um, and mm-hmm. so, the, you know, the medical societies, again, when we look at the dose response, steroids here or there, okay, you know, one to two steroid packs a year, medrol packs for pain, for, you know, inflammation, we want you to feel well. But when it starts to be five, six a year, you know, a steroid epidural every six months, this is something where we do, you need your bone health evaluated because we need to make sure on adequate calcium, vitamin D, and maybe you need a bone medication. When women are on, and men too are on steroids, we have classes of medicines now that prevent steroid induced osteoporosis. And so that is absolutely something. And generally we're thinking about doses like five to 7.5 milligrams orally for at least three months. Higher doses are even more detrimental. Sometimes those are inevitable. If, if I have a patient on steroids, I don't tell them, oh, try and get off those steroids. If they're on it for an indication like chemotherapy, you know, like stem cell, my stem cell transplant patients, and, and we're trying our best. So we have to support their bones in another way, whether it's, it's medication as well as lifestyle and the awareness. And we do routine DEXAs, you know, yearly DEXAs on those patients. They're high risk for particularly vertebral fractures, which two thirds of the times vertebral fractures can be silent. So they can cause tight loss, a little bit of back pain, you know, and they're usually under-recognized. And so, you know, high-risk patients really, again, they're usually under subspecialist care, but it is important to kind of think about the cumulative dose of steroids or have someone be thinking about that, particularly if you're getting, you know, steroids from multiple different places. Yeah. And thank you for that explanation. But what we'll do now, we've done enough gloom and doom about the bone. Let's talk about how, what positive things we can do about the bone and how people can increase their bone health or increase the the strength of their bones. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about first the impact of exercise on bone health. If you're enjoying this episode, don't wait to the end to share it. Share it now. Share this with a friend or a colleague that you think might find value in this information. And then also... Make sure that you click and leave us a five-star review and give us feedback because we really value your feedback and your input. Now back to the episode. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, this is, uh, and I, I am the same. I, you know, I, I always try and say again, like, let's individualize the care, like turn it to what, you know, what can we do? Because there are so many things. I mean, you know, in medicine, we have so much, and, and even in women's health now, there's so many more options for women. So in terms of exercise, this is always one that, you know, I always try and simplify, like you said, let's simplify this. You know, I generally tell women what's good for the brain is good for the bones is good for the heart probably good for your mood. And so all of those things together are really important. So weight bearing exercise, bearing your own weight, whether that be walking, aerobic, uh, racket sports, you know, something in your gym, that is good for you. What we're, you know, at least trying to do that at 150 minutes, you know, weekly, that's 50 minutes, three times a week, 30 minutes, five times a week. And I try and really like try and work with my patients on what they're already doing, what we could help them do better. When we think about other ex- other parts of the exercise to round out bone health, resistance training. I mean, this becomes so important in, and I've heard you speak on this on your other with your other guests as well. Yeah. It, it doesn't need to be that you're going out. My patients think, oh my God, I need to go out and lift like 50 pound weights. And I've never been that type of person. No, it's using your own body weight. So things like yoga and Pilates, using resistance bands, using your own body weight can do that. 
the hardest challenge is I can't just say, go do 15 minutes of resistance training twice a week. People, a lot of women look at me like, I don't, maybe I'm doing that. Maybe I'm not, I don't know. So it really, again, you know, needs, what are you doing currently? What could you be doing better? You know, how can we get you there? So, you know, using, I use a lot of like physical therapists, trainers. I have, you know, my own little review of research that I've shared with, I've given 20 exercises that I've, both literature has looked at in terms of improving bone strength. So even things like, again, lower body exercises like squats and things, as well as planking and exercises for the upper extensor spine to help with posture. So resistance exercise, but trying to tailor that, trying to do that two to three times a week. And I generally say that to my patients, say, I love to walk. I walk like I walk my dog, then I walk like two hours a, you know, a day. And I love that's great. That's great exercise. It's good thinking time, exercise, walking with a friend. so good. But you have to do something else. And then posture and balance is kind of also like the other stepsister that gets forgotten about, right? So that doesn't need to be difficult trying to balance, you know, we know this from the CDC, we know this from many, you know, studies, the get up and go test where you're standing right. up from a seated, on a seated position, not pushing down, walk, standing up, walking 10 meters and coming back. And then again, that is important. If that's too easy, trying to balance on one foot for 20, 30 seconds, you can make that challenging by, you know, again, I can't show you with my, I would show you, but I show my <laughs> patients in the office how to challenge their balance. If they're working with a trainer, I tell them, tell your trainer, you want to do more balance exercise. No one ever, it's kind of like therapy. No one ever gets more balanced, more, more balanced training. So, you know, trying to work because that changes as we age, right? proprioception, how we yeah. feel in the world, medications, you know, our feet and hip mechanics that really changes. And then that leads to falls, right? One in four individuals in the United States fall over the age of 65 a year, right? That leads to the most um, hospitalizations um, in the emergency room for women and men over 65, right? And, and again, we've talked about that downward spiral, we're going to try and prevent these things. So resistance exercise, weight-bearing aerobic exercise as well as posture exercises. And sometimes I have people bundle those things together. I say, do your aerobic with your posture and then do your resistance with your posture, you know, two, you know, two, three days a week and try and, you know, think about doing those and put that on a calendar or have your set days, get that in when you're brushing your teeth, the balance, get that in when you're waiting for your coffee, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store, all these things, you can find a way to add these in. And it's amazing. My patients come back to me. I can tell you, Dr. Burgess, and they are like, my balance got so much better. They are so proud. And I'm like, I told you it would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then talk about even how just going outside, being exposed to the sun, the sun is a very great source for vitamin D. We know that people that have more melanin in their skin is not absorbed as well, but the sun is a valuable source of vitamin D. So getting that sun exposure is very important. So speak on that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I think we, you know, we kind of sometimes struggle with the dermatologists that put on the sunscreen, yeah. the UVA, UVB, and then, you know, we know that, you know, getting out in the sun, right. We know that why, you know, we know I lived in Cleveland for a while. I loved Cleveland, but there, there's not a lot of sun there. Yeah. I mean, sun exposure is important. We know that that helps us, you know, metabolize the vitamin D, which is a pro hormone into the skin and really convert uh, vitamin D to its active form. You know, we do need, you know, vitamin D on our face, chest and arms for, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, pretty much every single day at a, you know, and in the northern latitudes, you know, we don't get that as much if we put on again, protective clothing, SPF, which again, we want to do, we're not maybe absorbing as much vitamin D as we age, that hormone is a little bit sluggish as well, or, or that enzyme, we're not converting as much uh, active vitamin D, there can be other uh, things that compete and, and don't uh, affect that absorption as well. So 
most of the time now, and, and you know, even in, I always love this study that they, they studied, you know, lifeguards sitting out in the sun for every single day, you know, 20, 30 year olds, and they're, you know, the mean vitamin D level 25 hydroxy vitamin D is how vitamin D should really be assessed in the blood work was only 80 nanograms per milliliter. So it's not like, you know, you're getting so much sun exposure that you're going to overdose from, from right. vitamin D. So most people, if you're not a, you know, again, a lifeguard, and even my patients in Florida sometimes have low vitamin D. Again, you know, age affects that, metabolism, other other medications. Most people need to take some fortified vitamin D, uh, vitamin D supplements. They come in many different forms, you know, wafers, or, uh, liquids, sprays, you know, tablets, gummies, so many different forms. Generally, you know, cholecalciferol is vitamin D3, ergocalciferol is vitamin D2. So lots of different ways to obtain the vitamin D um, that are, you know, easily accessible. You don't want to overdose. I mean, I think we're coming a little bit further from the COVID pandemic does not mean COVID is behind us. But, you know, people were taking super therapeutic doses of vitamin D. We do know that patients with very, very low vitamin Ds, you know, had a higher propensity to have, you know, negative uh, downturn effects with COVID. That was, you know, some small Italian studies that were done. But for a majority of people, again, a vitamin D level should be between 30 on the lower end nanograms per milliliter to, you know, 60 to 70 is the upper sort of the upper range uh, nanograms per milliliter. So some women need 800 international units of vitamin D, some people need 1,000. Someone with malabsorption or other need more, need higher doses. We need to sometimes tank that up. So it's something definitely a, a moving target, but that is something that you can, it should be able to be assessed with, you know, again, at every midlife women's health visit and even, you know, beyond to make sure that that vitamin D is staying within range. Yeah. So I'm glad you covered that. And also the role of your diet, what foods are really good for vitamin D and calcium sources? What foods do you recommend for good bone health? Yeah, this is also I spend a lot of time, you know, in my office, I failed to mention, you know, I have my practice bone and body women's health. So you can see the bone is right in there. So I spent a lot of time, you know, at my practice, because there are so much there is so many misconceptions, you know, about calcium, you know, a lot of women come to me with, you know, calcium intolerance, dairy intolerance, lactose intolerance, and we it's true, as we age, I mean, we don't, you know, a lot of people don't metabolize you know, the lactase enzyme is less frequent or is less active. And so they, you know, that generous bowl of ice cream they were able to tolerate now, you know, used to be their friend is now their foe. <laughs> so we have to talk about that. And thankfully, you know, again, here in the United States, and, and there are a lot of calcium fortified foods. So again, I work with what people are doing. There's some, a lot of calcium calculators that are freely available. The International Osteoporosis Foundation has one, the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, all nonprofits, excellent organizations, a lot of free education on there. I do a lot of writing with them and, and consulting and all again, like for, you know, fun and for making sure that this is, you know, good, good information out to our, out to the public about bone health and, and osteoporosis. So again, there are fortified foods, dairy foods obviously have a higher calcium content. Doesn't mean that spinach, kale, broccoli do not have calcium and they're not good for you. They just don't have a, a very high calcium content. So you always have to be fortifying with either foods or, you know, again, this is where supplements come, you know, the supplement industry is huge, probably for a reason, you'd rather supplement than diet and, and things, but you need to 
we need to work together on those. So finding the appropriate supplements, calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, you know, working, there's some plant-based calciums, you know, the absorption of those is a little bit questionable. So I kind of review the, the literature and what patients are taking, what they can tolerate, right? Because we do have, it's usually not calcium in isolation. Many of my patients come with, you know, different, you know, again, medical backgrounds, surgical backgrounds, medicines, and really you have to kind of look at the whole picture. Yeah, no, that's great. And this has been an awesome, you know, I'm sitting up here thinking this is good for the layperson as well. This is almost a lecture that I need to let the residents listen to because so many things that we discussed are overlooked even by physicians. Um, so hopefully this will help layperson say, hey, I need to be more involved in knowing what my bone health is, as well as some of the providers saying, hey, I need to be a little more serious even if I can't take care of all of it, I need to get my patient into the right hands of someone like yourself. Right. Refer. Right. I think, again, that's what I, I work a lot on. Like, okay, just, you know, we think about you know, routine screenings at menopause. We think about colonoscopies and pap smears and mammograms and all those things are very important, you know, but then, you know, that's sort of the, we, the way we talk about it in women's health is that that's kind of like bikini medicine, right? That's like, well, there's more than, than that, right? There's cardiovascular health. We know now there's so much more going on in the world of cognition and dementia. Again, understanding the age of menopause is really, really important. Talking about the risk benefits, that's a whole, you know, I'm not going to keep you here for another hour, but um, talking <laughs> about the risk benefits of using hormone therapy at the time of menopause for menopausal symptoms. We know so many women, you know, used to suffer or suffer through that, or they would say, oh, you know, I'm scared about breast cancer. But really a lot of that, those myths have really been debunked and really helping understand for you that really actually it's not worth suffering through the vasomotor symptoms and having osteoporosis and, you know, uh, you know, having not being able to, you know, think clearly uh, during the day and, and hoping that'll go away in one, two years. But for some women that last menopause symptoms can last a long time. Um, so, you know, again, we have options. I think that's, you know, again, just like you and when you're going to do a surgery or do, you know, do a cast or do, you know, think about the differential of knee pain, you know, we have options and it's the same, right. you know, in, in the menopause and midlife and, and really extends to, you know, the bone health world, lots of treatment options that are FDA approved, safe and effective for both prevention and treatment of osteoporosis. And as we've discussed, lots of lifestyle things to talk about, calcium, vitamin D, exercise, all of those uh, really play together, really at the intersection of health. And as you mentioned about um, options, just like with orthopedics, the earlier you present in the disease process, the more options we have. Just like if you present early with arthritis, we can do other things other than surgery. If you prevent earlier with your bone health, you can do other things and just take medication, you know, diet, exercise. So make sure that you're getting in early. Make sure that this is a part of your yearly routine, just like you're doing, doing your screenings for mammograms and other things. Absolutely. Yeah, good messages. I mean, I think we, again, we're starting at the primary care world to really focus on that gynecologic world. Um, and, and again, really, again, the menopause world is a small group of providers, you know, I'm a menopause certified provider, there's, you know, less than 2000 in the country. And, and if you do have your listeners, and you are suffering from menopausal symptoms, or, you know, have questions about menopause, or entering midlife or perimenopause, those are, we're a small group of, you know, both internist gynecologists, you know, cardiologists, endocrine, whole grouping of clinicians who really focus again on menopause and actually are our um, meeting, uh, our national meeting is next week in uh, Philadelphia, which is very exciting. And it's actually my favorite time of year, because it's just such a, a, a powerhouse of uh, good collegial knowledge and, uh, you know, working all towards, again, the same goal of 
treating midlife women better and giving them resources that they need. That's great. And tell us about the new practice that you, you recently opened up, your women's uh, bone and body. Yeah. Yeah. So also, you know, again, like just like, you know, we are always evolving in the medical. I always tell my kids that, too. It's like, you know, school doesn't end just because it's Saturday, you know, right. <laughs> reading and learning can happen on the weekend. I think I feel like they're, you know, like kind of curious kids, which is good, but you still have to pull them to do all the things. Right. So. You know, I, I, you know, I think from the days at the Cleveland Clinic, I just love that interdisciplinary model of care, really like trying to do a one-stop shop for women, really, again, make sure that, you know, we're talking, spending deep, you know, time and thinking about all the, you know, all the factors at, at midlife, whether, you know, what happened postpartum, what your current medical history looks like, and then what the future looks like with all the, again, menopause, cardiovascular, bone, metabolism, all of these things really, you know, together. So I, I, I started, um, you know, I've been in academic practice for over 15 years. And, um, you know, this goal to, to open my own practice um, was has come to bear, which is exciting. It's called Bone and Body Women's Health. It's in the northern suburbs of Chicago. And yeah, I'm, I'm really in the beginning part of this journey, although I think it's, um, you know, it's a real estate part and legal and malpractice and, and, pa- and the patient care part is the fun part. Um, and I'm, so I'm really learning the business of medicine. I've been happy, uh, really lucky to have some mentors, um, which I think you know as well, and, and both in the women's health field, business world, and really supportive family. So I've loved having pa- my patients continue with me. It's like the great, I always say it's like the greatest gift when they want to continue to see me, my, pa- my older patients, and then word of mouth patients. And I'm doing a lot of social media and education where I have more time for all of those uh, things now on, um, and really to kind of educate in a broader sphere, which is also really was as part of my goal. No, that's great. Um, and like I mentioned before, that practice is much needed, especially for people to be able to refer to because many people don't have time to deal with all the different factors and all the different treatments for bone health. But knowing that we have a place to refer patients to is very comforting. Yeah, that's the, that's what I hope. I'm seeing some. Pa- I'm in Illinois, but I am seeing some patients virtually, and then working on like a multi-state license again. And I do a lot with some of the telehealth com- companies within, um, you know, again, just social media and, and and sharing that there are options for women that they don't have to just if their local community doesn't have a menopause provider or doesn't have someone who specialized in osteoporosis to help, you know, provide the information that they could they need or help them connect with a provider that they might. And that's where I think again, you know, keep continuing with you know, the academic world and, and the, the connections that I've created have always so helpful, right. And, and helping patient care. And then so much, learn, so much, you know, progress is going on in this area. We have, you know, new pharmacokinetics and new medications, and then how we use those in concert, how we, again, educate more primary care clinic providers, how we work with the orthopedic surgeons. Uh, there's something called the fracture liaison service, which is where this is kind of connected to orthopedic fracture care is really connected to the orthopedics and working on that prevention treatment model uh, and post-fracture care is so, so important. So I'm also doing a lot of work there. So I thank you for the interest in this small niche area. Cause I know when you say menopause, yeah. people are like, okay, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if I want to go there, <laughs> right. Yeah, Understood. but you did. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so on Time Out with Sports, Doctor, this is your final timeout. So we've covered a lot of different topics, but I want to just summarize what people can do and how it's never too early to really start being concerned about your bone health so that they can prevent some of the fractures and just, you know, morbidity that we talked about. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, the key message would be, you know, bone health at midlife should be something we think about. So whether menopause again is 40 or 50 or 55, you know, at that time we need to be doing a fracture risk assessment, which you can do with your physician. We can do a screening bone mineral density again, to understand what is your bone density? What is your bone strength? What's your risk of fracture for the subsequent years. I think that's the really important. And if you don't do those diagnostic testing, you're at least thinking about those things like calcium, vitamin D exercise. And I always think, you know, when we think about midlife, you know, when we, when particularly this resonates with women, you know, when we go to our purse, you know, if you've had children or if you're planning to have children, you know, we go to OBGYN and we go to a first meeting and they tell us, you know, okay, you should have this, you know, you, you're going to need to take a prenatal vitamin and you're going to come for the sonogram now and this, you're going to prepare for delivery and, and all these things. And we kind of lay out a roadmap, but we don't lay out a roadmap, you know, at midlife and in menopause. And we really should because women are living a third to sometimes over, you know, a quarter, a half of their life in the postmenopausal years. And so again, thinking about what's the roadmap what's for the, the next subsequent years and whether that also includes, you know, again, menopausal topics we dressed on, but today, we talked about today, bone health, particularly because we know that, you know, one in two women will sustain an osteoporosis related fracture in their lifetime versus one in eight women will get diagnosed with breast cancer, both very, very important areas that we want to think about. And even other areas like cardiovascular disease still trumps both of those things in terms of, you know, how those women are affected. So we need to be thinking about you know, again, individualizing your care, moving forward, and what is, you know, for the net for the subsequent postmenopausal and post reproductive years, what does that look like for you? And how could you um, live that your best way? Absolutely. So I'm sure there will be a lot of questions generated from this uh, episode. Tell people how they can contact you. I have for those on YouTube, I have your uh, name of your practice and your website here, but tell people how they can contact. So my website is perfect. There is a, um, you know, an interface there where you can enter some questions. Um, you can email us at hello at boneandbodywh.com. Um, I'm also on um, Instagram and Facebook and, and doing some more on that. Uh, again, ed mostly educating or sharing other free lectures and things like that, that I'll be giving. So that's a, you know, a couple ways you can interface. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for all this valuable information. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Likewise, I'm happy to have have me on as a guest. And I really appreciate the, the discussion. And, and I really hope this resonates with a lot of your listeners. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episodes. Until later. Peace. Medicine.